0: Let's go ahead and pray. Um, Father, thank you for your word uh, that trains us up in the way we should go, that leads us, that gives us hope and encouragement, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might have the hope and comfort of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we're looking at Job um, We're going to look at a lot of Job today. Uh, We only have three more lessons on Job, and it has 41 chapters. So today we'll cover 24. I say we'll cover 24. We will glance and do excerpts from 24. Um, This is the story of Job, well, in, in schematic form, uh, it says epilogue up there. Um, that diagram is somewhere back in the notes last week, I think. Yep, page but we already covered the prologue. And uh, we learned in the prologue that righteous Job has lost everything his wealth, his family, his physical well being. We know why. But Job has been kept in the dark about this. Uh, we know why from the very beginning. And that is why I have said in the past, uh, in a previous lesson, this is somewhat like apocalyptic literature in that it reveals um, through visionary symbolism a reality that is not normally available to our eyes. Again, it is not specifically apocalyptic literature for if you're into technicalities there. But I think it has some resemblance to Revelation, particularly the part that, um, and I'll just mention this before I really get started, uh, the part that Nick read today, well, that uh, was read today uh, and that Nick preached on, uh, that we are going to suffer as Christians. I, I mean, it's literally a promise in the Gospel of John. We know it's true now. America is still an anomaly when it comes to persecution of Christians. If you live in North Korea or China or many Muslim countries, you really know what persecution is. Um, and we're going to suffer for what we don't know sometimes, other than because we name Christ. So Job doesn't know why he is suffering. He does know that he is righteous. He has that assurance within himself, and we know he's righteous. And so in the prologue, his friends have come to comfort him in his suffering, and they sit down with him in sympathetic silence for seven days and seven nights, which is Bible-speak for an extended period of time, but not definite, though it could have been seven. Perhaps they expected a quiet and sorrowful lament, um, We read the lament last week, uh, but what they got, as I shared last week, was an anguished and bitter complaint. He cursed the day he was born, and he meant it, and he longed for death. I have no peace, no quietness, Job cries. I have no rest, only turmoil, chapter 1, verse 26. So his friends are a bit taken aback at this. They're startled and shocked. Uh, They were not expecting it. Their spiritual (coughs) sensibilities are disturbed, I guess you could put it that way in 21st century psychological terms. And their perspective or their worldview is challenged and we'll see how much it's challenged as we go along. They feel compelled to answer and they do at great length and in great detail for 24 chapters. So this, this is not to scale, this diagram. So uh, three-fifths of the book, maybe three-fourths. Anyway, the bulk of the book is taken up by the dialogue between Job and his friends. And as I always do, I'd encourage you to read it. I'm, I'm hoping this is sort of a preview that will pique your interest because we can only just barely touch on it given the amount of time we have. You could spend uh, an entire semester or a a year on studying the book of Job. Um, The extended dialogue is the longest section, uh, 24 chapters. It leads readers through a consideration of the meaning of human suffering, the justice and purposes of God, And the limits of human wisdom. Uh, It is about suffering, you've probably heard that, but it's really not answering the question in a specific, satisfying, intellectual way why is there evil and why do people suffer? It is not traditionally what's called a theodicy or an attempt to justify God in the face of evil in the world. The story does this slowly and gradually. If, if you are not used to reading Hebrew poetry, it might seem tedious. It's not, at least it's not tedious like maybe Leviticus is. But it, it, it extends for a long period of time and, and builds up the tension uh, between Job and his friends, but also between us as readers and our understanding of the interplay between human suffering, wisdom, and the purposes of God. We are like Job's friends in that we think we know it all too. It finally reaches an impasse where finally everybody's had their say. Um, Maybe there's a few (coughs) moments of silence, but... It's an impasse that can only be surmounted by divine intervention, which if you know anything about the story, it is, but we'll get to that later. So the author doesn't present Job's friends as caricatures. Uh, this, is, this is not a comedy. I think someone asked about that last week. There are uh, some scholars who view like the character of Elihu as comedy relief. I, I disagree with that. I I read it, I've read it, and I don't see comedy in that. Um, We'll talk about what he means next week. But I don't think it's meant to break the tension. I think it means to clarify it to the point where we almost demand a resolution. And then we finally get it, but not in the way that Job or his friends think, and unless we've already read the book, not in the way we would think either. They're not caricatures or unserious. They mean well. They have good intentions. Uh, But they are representatives of a rigid approach to traditional, or you could call it patriarchal wisdom. And patriarchal wisdom is with us now, and I'm not gainsaying patriarchal wisdom. Um, I talked about it when we talked about Proverbs. There's a lot of thing in traditional wisdom that is of value. Traditional wisdom isn't dismissed, But the author of Job, again, the unknown author, does question the rigidity of those who misapply wisdom and fail to understand wisdom's limits. And we're all, got to be careful here. Um, We're all familiar with people who just think they know everything, and particularly spiritually. And people who do think they know everything are really annoying to those of us who actually do. But... (laughs) But it's, it's just, I always used to tell my students when I was teaching them something very firmly or they were making a stand on something, I said, you know, have your views, back them up, but always have a little voice in the back of your head saying, you know what, you may be wrong. Um, there are some things I know I'm not wrong about, so it's, it's a hypothetical thing. But we should always be humble when it comes to contemplating God. And the amount we know about God, it is like, and it's not my illustration, but I use it. It is like we are a small child dabbling our feet in the edge of this very edge of the surf at a beach, and that's all we know, and the knowledge of God is this vast, wide ocean before us, both in an expanse and its depth, and so we should be humble. these dialogues I, I think they're in a different order in the book, but I mean in the notes, but it doesn't matter. So the dialogues go like this in three cycles. Uh, each friend speaks, and after each friend speaks, uh, Job replies. Uh, it, it's not a few lines of dialogue and then a few more lines. It, it, you can almost say it mutual monologues because there's extensive speeches by a friend and then an extensive speech by Job but we call them dialogues. Uh, The one break in this pattern, and there's a reason for it, which I'll mention later, um, is in the third cycle, Zophar, he ran out of things to say uh, back in cycle two, and he does not have a place in the third cycle. The place for that is taken up by what's called an interlude of wisdom in chapter 28, and we'll get back to that too, but it's deliberately left out by the author that Zophar does not speak. He does not have the last word of the friends. Um, the key, a key component of the conceptual framework of Joe's friends is something I've taught before. It's the inflexibility of the doctrine of retribution. This is the standard terminology. I prefer the uh, doctrine of recompense because when you say retribution, you're, you're almost always thinking of something bad. But it means not just the bad get what they deserve, but the upright are always blessed by God and the wicked are always punished and in this lifetime. And that's gonna be very important. It's hard to understand Job unless you understand they do not have a fully developed understanding of the afterlife as we do. They don't believe in extinction, they're, they're not materialists, but they do not have that full-blown understanding. But there are hints. This is really a book that was meant to train people up in the way that they should go, specifically uh, the Israelites, of course. And there are hints and, and pointers towards a more full understanding of the afterlife. But it was believed that it was very important for both the righteous and the wicked to be rewarded in this lifetime. Because when you die, everybody goes to the same sort of shadowy existence in Sheol. There aren't any exceptions to this rule as far as Joe's friend are concerned. And that's very important. They never admit of an exception to this rule. So it's almost like a formula. Uh, if you've sinned, you will suffer. Therefore, if you suffered, you must have sinned. Even if we haven't seen it, even if we can't identify it, even if we didn't see you, we know you must have sinned because you're suffering. Because of their frame of mind, they cannot adapt their thinking to Job's particular plight. And so they move inexorably from consolation, which there's precious little of, just a little bit in the beginning, but to outright condemnation by the time they're through. And so you've heard the saying, like Job's friends, and it's like with friends like Job's who needs enemies kind of thing. Um and the phrase "miserable comforters," which is an oxymoron, but very apt, so the first to speak is Eliphaz, and I will apologize I forgot to bring my hard copy of the phone, so I mean a hard copy of the Bible, so I'm going to be reading off my phone because I think I prefer to read it in the n I v so uh, starting with chapter four, verse one, El- Eliphaz the Temanite replied. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble strikes you. Trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. And skipping over to chapter 5. But if I were you, I would appeal to God, and I would lay my cause before him. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injured, but his hands also heal. And verse 27, we have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself, Eliphaz says to Job. So his first speech, and it's even only towards the beginning and into the middle of the first speech, is the only one that has any attempt at compassion or understanding for Job. Uh, he, he even asked Job to remember his piety. Uh, that he w- Job was recognized for being a righteous man, not uh, just by God, but by his tribe and his friends. So he resists blaming Job specifically. Uh, elsewhere in the text, he gives as the reason for Job's suffering, the limitations and general sinfulness of all men. And who wouldn't disagree with that? As I read this, I mean, you might, you might be wondering, you might be thinking, well, this sounds good. I haven't heard anything I disagree with yet. Did you have a question? No, John? Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, and that's a sense in which this is true, that um, traditional wisdom is not dismissed. The problem is, how is it applied? And we'll think about that as we go along. So Eliphaz insists, and he emphasizes, and I think I've bolded it, uh, and they'll hit home on these. There's three key points. One, each one makes one, and they'll hit home on this throughout the dialogues. So Eliphaz insists, before God, no human being is righteous, and we agree with that. He encourages Job to appeal to God to repent, that God may restore his health and fortune. Ironically, if Job did this, he would be proving Satan right. Job served God only for the benefits he gave Job. So Job replies, and let's look at chapter 6 a little bit. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales. It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty have been in, the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshalled against me." Verse eight: "Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Now, we've got to admit, if we heard that from someone we knew was suffering, we would probably tell them to calm down and get a grip which is kind of what Job's friends are going to say to him. Um, Skipping down to verse 24. Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? Moving to chapter 7, we'll look at a couple of verses there. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 17 Job now speaks to God, not to his friends. What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention? That you examine them every moment and test them every moment. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what, I have, what have I done to you, you who see everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me. But I will be no more. So Job answers Eliphaz and continues his complaint to God. He doesn't say, "Oh, okay, Eliphaz, I guess I get it. I'm going to repent and do as you suggest. He still laments his suffering and now the lack of compassion from his friends. Yet he refuses to appeal to God for restoration. He knew that he would be being dishonest if he did that. He is concerned about his relationship to God and so seeks vindication, not simply his fortunes and so he, sinks. he seeks not restoration of things as the way before. He's looking for God, not his health, wealth, or prosperity. He accuses God of excessive harshness towards him. We can see God start to move from self-pity now to anger. He's actually angry. Uh, Bildad is next. Let's see what he has to say. Bildad is the shortest person in the Bible. He's the Shuhite. Okay. Okay a joke oh. is that... <laughs> oh. Oh. Bildad the Shuhite oh. okay then Bildad the height replied how long will you say such things your words are a blustering wind does God pervert justice does the almighty pervert what is right of course not who, who would disagree with that When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. So Bildad goes next. He is harsh from the beginning. He calls Job's eloquent anguish, blustering wind. You're a blowhard, Job. And says, Job's children must have gotten what they deserved. Well, how did Bildad know that? We don't know it. And we have no indication that Job's children did anything to deserve their fate. This is where the friends, not really even the first time, you read through the dialogues carefully but the most pointed early one that they assume knowledge that they do not have you must have sinned your children must have sinned because they were destroyed god does not pervert justice well no of course he doesn't but we could say bildad twists wisdom Speaking from within the framework of the doctrine of retribution like Eliphaz, Bildad also encourages Job to repent that his fortunes may be restored. Seek God for what he gives you. So Job replies. Let's look at chapter 9. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? And skipping down to 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. He is speaking to God here. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Verse 32. He, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job answers that he is being punished unfairly and God has not told him what charges there are against him. He knows he cannot prove his innocence to God. It's not that he does not believe in his innocence, but he knows he can't prove it. You can see there's another tension here. What does it mean to be right before God? Job knows he's not sinless. It's a a conclusion in the background that everybody knows nobody's perfectly sinless. But we know that Job is right before God because God himself has said so. So there really is this tension, and it really does come down to Job's faith, which will come up as we go along. So he can't prove his innocence, so he contemplates the possibility of an umpire, a mediator who could reconcile him with God. And we get intimations here of the emphasis on a Savior as a mediator between God and man. That's all just intimations. This is, you got to remember, this was written in the time just before Isaiah. So again, this is God teaching his people and leading them to understand this. This is one of the ways in which the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, preaches Christ. So Job is now moving between despair and hope. He'll say something... That we think, well, he's finally coming completely out of his funk, and then he'll go back down in despair, and he'll move back and forth between this. He is unwilling to simply submit to the traditional but misguided wisdom that he just needs to repent, and his fortunes will be restored. And the idea that what he really desires is a reconciliation. From God, which requires that he be completely honest with God. So next is Zophar. Let's go down to chapter eleven. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak. We call that foreshadowing in in the author speak. That he would open his lips against you. But we know that's not going to happen. Spoiler alert. God will not open his lips against Job. He will open them against Job's friends. And disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Job, we know you're a sinner because you suffered. You need to repent before God. Verse 13. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water has gone by." Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope, and you will look about you and take your rest in safety. So Zophar continues to bear down on the doctrine of retribution, reaching the conclusion that Job is indeed suffering for his own hidden sin, that God's even... Sort of looked away from some of that, but Job still needs to repent. Since God directly punishes every <clears throat> evil doer directly in this lifetime, no exceptions. Zophar, like the other friends, urges Job to repent so that his health, wealth, and status may be restored. Like the others, Zophar also unknowingly supports Satan's position by encouraging Job to seek God for personal gain. There is a difference today in what's called the health and wealth gospel because it's been mingled not with this idea of traditional wisdom and the doctrine of retribution, but now it is mingled with the idea, the American idea of the power of positive thinking. So, if you're familiar with some of the health and wealth gospelers, they will talk about your need to affirm yourself. Um, one very famous one, appeared, <coughs> his name was Joel Osteen, actually was in an interview where some secular reporter mentioned that Joel Osteen never talked about sin, which I don't know that he never talks about it. I'm just quoting the interview. <coughs> and Joel uh, Osteen said, Well, I, I believe it's my calling to lift people up and encourage them which is not a bad thing to do. Um, So we've come to the idea a bit different to what Job's friends are saying. Uh, You need to repent of your sin that you might be prosperous and healthy. But it's the same idea in the sense of seeking God for what he offers and not for God himself. So Job replies... Excuse me. Chapter 12. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock to my friends Though I called on God, and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Um, chapter 13 <coughs> My eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. Verse 12. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Verse 15. So he goes again. Remember, he's moving between despair and hope. And now we get one of the most remarkable statements of faith. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him chapter 14 if only you would hide me in the grave he is speaking to God and conceal me till your anger has passed if only you would set me a time and then remember me if someone dies will they live again all the days of my hard service I will wait for my renewal to come You will call, I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as waters wash away stones and torrents wash away the soil, So you destroy a person's hope. You overpower them once for all, and they are gone. You change their countenance and send them away. So he goes from hope back down to despair. So he sees that his friends have not taken into account his particular and unique experience. And everybody has a particular and unique experience. And just... It occurred to me, and it might occur to you, but this is not situational ethics. The author is not arguing that because each person's experience is unique, therefore morality must bend. He is encouraging us to, and through, through the mistakes of the friends, to recognize our limitations when it, under, when it comes to understanding both God and our friends. So they are guilty of misapplied teaching and shallow platitudes. Some of the things they said were perfectly true. Even the the three things that they emphasize. Before God, no human being is righteous. God does not pervert justice. God directly punishes every evildoer. No human being is righteous, but some people can be made righteous. God does not pervert justice but he doesn't necessarily destroy us immediately as our sins might deserve. God directly punishes every evildoer, but he might wait patiently. So Job expresses hope, even musing on the possibility of resurrection, musing on the possibility, but then turns back to despair in contemplating the finality of death. Yet he refuses to compromise his integrity and his struggling faith now and then compels him to make remarkable assertions of his faith in God. That's how uh, Old Testament scholar John Hartley puts it. And this closes the first cycle of speeches. Um, and we'll, we'll summarize what the rest say. It's, it's not a complete repetition, just so you know. And it's, it is fascinating reading and I'll encourage you to read it. Um, uh, it does require a, a certain desire to really get deeply into it, because after a while, you're almost as angry with friends for being uh, blustery, pig-headed, and misguided as Job himself thought, and you just kind of want, oh, be quiet and go away, It's almost what you want to say to the people on the page. I don't know if you get involved with your reading that much, but... Sometimes I do, though I'll admit it's mainly fiction. So in the second cycle, the second cycle contains another full round of speeches. Uh, The friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, still have much to say, though their speeches are all shorter. In the first cycle, Job's friends sought to comfort him by teaching him God's wisdom and encouraging him to repent. In this round of speeches, in the second cycle, his friends grow increasingly impatient, and you will see it, it builds up gradually and and, but inexorably, and they suspect him of serious hidden sin. They still encourage him to repent lest he undergo yet greater suffering. Job maintains his integrity and refuses to repent of sins he has not committed. Job insists that the evidence shows that the doctrine of retribution in this life is not absolute. Imagine that. Sometimes the wicked prosper. And we know this. And it's frustrating. Sometimes they prosper and sometimes they live in peace. And sometimes they run the government. Despite his anguish, and that that was a political but non-political statement, Uh, Let me finish real quick. I just got a few more, and then we'll take questions, uh, Kevin. Um, Despite his anguish and agonizing laments, God still expresses his faith in God as his witness and even his redeemer. This is probably one of the most famous uh, texts in Job, and Nick referred to it today. Job 19 Uh, 25 through 27 I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes I and not another how my heart yearns within me now the background for that passage is, is the Israelite idea of the kinsman redeemer your, cl- your brother or close relative, who if you were sold into slavery would buy you back, who if you died, it was this intimate, would marry your wife and raise up children in your name, who was someone who would stand by you and be your redeemer. The idea is now extended and Job is thinking about, well, what about in the spiritual and and reconciliation with God sense and so it's not again a full blown idea of uh, redemption and resurrection but it's pointing in that direction so the third cycle continues in the same vein as the others but there is no speech from Zophar thank goodness Zob's friends now outright condemn him so without evidence, uh, Eliphaz accused him, of a list of a whole host of sins. Uh, it's, it's in chapter twenty-two, I believe, and still urges Job to repent, submit to God, and be at peace with Him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Bildad barely speaks; he only gets a paragraph, and he only reminds that compared to Job, compared to God, human beings are like maggots and worms. Job still insists on his innocence. He still cannot discern God's purposes, but he expresses the hope that God sees and knows him. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. 23, verse 10. Job realizes that he cannot have peace with God by seeking God for the blessings he gives rather than for God himself, as Hartley notes. Job knows that he can gain no help from his friends. The only way out for him of this anguish is to argue his case before God, who he is convinced would acquit an upright man. Job holds on to his faith due to his exalted view of God and his trust in God's justice and mercy despite his own suffering. He is buffeted, as we are intended to be by the author, By this paradox that the God he believes will restore him is also the one who has caused his bitterness and affliction. The friends begin with preconceived ideas, and so they give birth to mistakes. They begin not with what they saw, but with what they presume to be true. They had... No evidence of their eyes or reports that Job had, in fact, sinned greatly. Their wisdom was not all wrong, but they did not know what they did not know, and they misapplied what they did know. They equated their limited knowledge with the mind of God. They know God would never cause a righteous man to suffer like Job, and they made no allowance for God's patience, purposes, plans or final judgment. Okay, next week, we'll move on to an interlude on wisdom and the final speech, speeches of Job and Elihu. Um, questions, Kevin, you had a question? Yeah,
1: i trying to think of how to say this well. Um, you mentioned that Job's friends They have some right ideas, some truths in what they're saying. Um, I guess, tell me what you think of this. The way I tend to look at it is these guys, they're trying to put these truths together into a package. And they just don't seem to fit. And so they have to make sort of, I don't know, like almost additions. Like God always, you know, this theology of retribution or whatever you called it. God always punishes the evil in this life or something like that. They have to do that or else their worldview falls apart and they don't know anything.
0: Can I summarize that? Well, let let me just answer the question. (laughs) Um, Yes, kind of, I agree with what you're saying, but more so, I think this is what they're doing. They cannot get beyond the fact that their system is is not the fully coherent comprehensive non-contradictory explanation of, you know, the universe and everything in God that they want it to be and that uh, they they can't allow exceptions because this would uh, cognitive dissonance might not be the word existential dissonance might be the word they can't allow exceptions this is a tradition they've gotten and they they have to make Job fit into this pre-existing system. They, not all, it's been said all, but many heresies are created by pushing a truth to its uh, illogical extension. Um, and if, if I had been thinking of it, I would have come up with an example before I came here. But what they've done is come up with what they believe to be an airtight Theological system, let's be honest, we've all been like this and we all know people like that. That how doctrines and ideas cohere in their head are more important than, than other people, really. Um, I've been like that I was particularly like that when I was in seminary because of course when you're in seminary you know everything. Um, and they just never seem to get beyond that. They cannot deal with Job as a person. They simply deal with him as an example for their system to analyze and spit out an answer. Does that help with your yeah. question? I sort of understood it. I
1: think the the uh, example that, as you were talking about the example, think about the part that free will plays in so many people's theology. If you take free will out, nothing works for them. And so they, they defend it more vigorously than they would defend the divinity of Jesus. Um,
0: <laughs> like, okay. That is that is a good point. Although it, if free will is as <clears throat> complicated. My I, The will is free but bound. That I really believe that. But I'm not going to explain that.
1: Right <laughs> just, well, just my, so my, my point there was not to, not to open it. I know. You were just
0: picking out an example. But you're right. right. People people get bugs in their bonnet
1: you think, i mean think about it. that's really how they solve their theodicy in that in that case people will appeal to free will as a basically a reason for there to be right. evil in a universe that a good god created right
0: well it's one factor but of course it begs the question where did evil come from in the first place and And then we could get, and people say, well, Satan, well, how did Satan become evil? He was God's good creation. So let's not get started on that. Does anybody else have any questions about Job? Uh, Or anything? Um, We are out of time, and I don't want to keep any, we have five minutes over. So if no one has any more questions, next week we'll continue and talk about the story of Job and what it means for our lives. Thank you all very much.